from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Christian Bell Onyemali is the Director of Evaluation and Learning at 4.0 Schools, an organization that connects, coaches, and invests in people to test new learning spaces and tools within their community. Prior to 4.0, Christian worked at Austin Independent School District, Teach for America, and KIPP in Texas, providing data and evaluative support to increase student achievement. She is a firm believer in the power of education and achieving educational equity. So Christian, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh yeah, thank you so much Garrett for having me, excited to be here. So let's kick it off talking about you, as I always like to do. Could you just tell the audience a little bit about your story? What brought you to your current role, but also just the field of education in general? It's a great question. Um, Every time I think about this question or answering it, I think about going back to like literally my childhood experience. I, um, so I currently live in the Austin, Texas area. I've been here since 2007, no, 2009. Um, but I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where I was born and raised. Um, and I am the product of public schools, um, from third grade on to, um, I graduated from high school and I had the opportunity to go to, um, what, what are magnet schools in, in Tulsa, had a wonderful education experience, very strong, um, ended up going to Spelman College um, in Atlanta, Georgia, and had a, um, a, a wonderful experience once I understood how to navigate the experience as a first-generation college student, right? So I was the first in my immediate family to both attend and graduate from college. And I think for me, growing up, like the educational experience that I had, I was like, oh, this is what everyone has. Even in the city of Tulsa, everyone in Tulsa has this. And that was not the case, right? Um, The schools that I went to, the high school in particular back then and even now was considered the top high school in the state of Oklahoma. And I was just like, oh, this is what all students get. Um, And over time, I came to learn that that's not true, especially that became more relevant in my or became more prominent prominent in my, um, like my senior year at Spelman, um, which led me to actually apply to Teach for America. It's like, I want to, you know, help address the, um, what was then called the achievement gap. Um, it's still called that, but I have some qualms with the whole achievement gap (laughs) language and how we think about that. Um, but that's, we can talk about that maybe later on. Um, so that's what led me to really be understanding like educational equity, what that means, how that shows up and how I might address that. I applied to TFA. I also applied to grad school. Um, I was like, oh, I really need to go to grad school. That's my thing. Like go and do a master's program, learn about the whole education system. Got to my graduate program in uh, California and I was like, I need actual work experience. Like I should not just be jumping into this straight out of undergrad. Um, And so then I ended up going back to working um, for Teach for America on the recruitment team. And I like to tell people that I recruited myself um, into TFA because then I became um, a core member um, and taught first grade in Houston, Texas um, for a couple of years. Um, While I was teaching, I came to love my students, but I didn't necessarily like teaching, if that makes sense. Um, Just like the 
There are things about the education system and being a teacher that were challenging for me and I had a lot of questions about why things were the way that they are. Um, and so I actually ended up moving here to Austin to go to um, my doctoral program um, at UT Austin, did a PhD in education policy and planning. And while I was in my program, I transparently, I needed to work. I needed some money. And so I applied for a job um, in Austin Independent School District in their research and evaluation department. Um, And that was actually my first time ever knowing that research and evaluation is a field of study. It is a actual thing that is needed um, in our school systems and other places. Um, And I also came to learn, like, I really love this kind of work. Like, that is my personality of knowing what is our impact. How do we know we are actually doing what we said we're going to do? Um, How do we make changes and edits that are rooted in um, data um, and not simply our thoughts and feelings? And so I really um, attribute that experience working at Austin ISD to really helping really set the stage for my career trajectory ever since 2010, because that's the kind of work that I've done since then. So working at Austin ISD for a number of years, um, eventually moving on to working for Teach for America again um, as a director of research and then a director of internal learning um, and innovation um, on our org Wyatt Learning and Strategy Team. That was a great opportunity for me to understand how to support our small, like our regions and understanding um, what is working, what is not. Um, and really this focus on doing smaller tests of different initiatives and approaches, right? So Teach for America at that time, and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of organizations, K through 12 districts, would just say, here's an idea that we have. Let's put a bunch of resources into it and our time and our money. We're not really sure yet if it's going to work. And that approach... it, it's faulty in a lot of ways, right? Because we, it's it's risky to be putting in so much time and effort into something that you're not really sure about. This is where I learned and was introduced to the idea and helping the organization um, learn about how do we start small? How do we test something on a smaller scale and then learn from that and then start to implement it on a larger um, scale? So thinking about that and working with our regions to understand that. Then I also had the great fortune of being able to answer larger organizational learning type questions. For example, um, we have a um, an event every five years that's sort of an anniversary of the organization. But do we know if the the are we what's the like are, is the juice worth the squeeze? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. Like, what are we actually getting out of this event? Um, these sorts of things. How should that drive our work going forward? Um, has really been a big, uh, so being able to answer those questions for the organization was uh, a big focus of my my work as well. And then I worked there for uh, maybe about four or five years and it was a remote role. So I like to say like I was doing remote work, like now everyone's doing remote work, but back then like... I was doing remote work. So like this whole transition. Yeah. yeah, Innovator. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a thing. Um, Or or like the team I was on, it was completely remote. So this um, so I think that really that's helped me currently and just in my ways of thinking about how we approach work. That's another conversation another time, though. Um, But it was a remote role. And I was like, I really want to work in a role that is um, 
that's more rooted in the community that I'm living in um, and how am I able to serve and, and you know, um, just be more connected. So then I started working for KIPP Texas Public Schools in a founding role where I supported our Austin region on using data for our, all of our schools within the region to understand um, what are we doing to address gaps, um, where are successes, how can we continue those things across um, the board. Previously to my role being started, um, schools sort of did that individually, but we need to take a more holistic approach um, so that we're better able to use our resources. So I created the systems and the structures for the Austin region. Um, and so that was a big focus of my work then. Um, and then I left uh, KIPP in last year, 2020, and did some um, some independent consulting work, still doing independent consulting work around nonprofits and their evaluation. Um, and then this role, my current role at um at 4.0, it was posted. I was like, ah, this sounds really interesting. I like the idea of 4.0 is at the time where they're realizing we need to have a focus on what our impact is as an organization and being able to communicate that really clearly and know what we're doing. And so this is also another founding role. I think I like founding roles. Like I like starting things. This is a thing I love. Um, and so that's what I'm doing now in this current role um, is um, I'm the inaugural, the first ever uh, director of evaluation and learning at 4.0. And so my, my work focuses on three areas. Um, first is for our fellows. How are they understanding how to evaluate whether their, their ideas um, are making the impact that they intend? How, and then the second one is for our organization 4.0 as a whole, like what is our work? What are we doing? What's the impact? What's the data that we're using to understand that? And then the third, which is sort of new for me and exciting to learn and grow in is how do we become a thought leader in the space of education um, and this research and design model of how do we um, how do we talk about our work, especially thinking about our community-centered perspective? What have we learned over the 10 years of this organization? Um, being um, what have we learned and what we want to share um, with the world um, basically about our work. I'm not new to 4.0. I'm new to 4.0 as an employee, but I am or a staff member, but I am not brand new to the organization. I'm also an alum of 4.0. I did our essentials program four years ago, and um, it actually set the stage for me to uh, create an idea I had around mentorship. The idea I had it didn't work, um, but I um, it helped me to think about how to re reconfigure it. And so I've actually um, switched up some pieces and was able to actually launch um, my nonprofit, which is called She Needs to Know. It's a mentoring program for, um, it's a near peer mentoring program for black high school girls in the Austin, Texas area. And that uh, my experience with 4.0 really set the stage for me to be able to launch that this year. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit about me. I don't know. Um, I feel like I've been talking a lot, which is weird, <laughs> but I don't know if, I, if you want to stop or ask me any other questions. It's incredible. It sounds like we could talk for many hours. So we'll <laughs> unfortunately, that's not possible. So I'll try to uh, distill it to a few through lines I heard in your career. Um, and one of those is just this importance of data, right? It's important of measurement. Um, and I think this is particularly interesting to me because in the education reform movement and especially on the progressive side of the aisle, which we identify with, mm -hmm. there's almost an allergic reaction 
to data in general, right? People have gone because of the way data has been misused historically. We're just going to forget numbers, right? We don't we don't need to quantify things. I think that's kind of absurd. But there is, in my opinion, a grain of truth in their argument, which is what we've been measuring is also absurd. You know, it's it's like we picked the subset of twenty percent of things that are easy to measure, and then we've staked, you know, the house, the farm on those. Uh, 10, 20% of things and uh, almost forgotten that anything else exists. Right? That, that, that's Sora's perspective on this. So I'd love to hear how you think about um, the role of data in testing in uh, measuring the efficacy of educational initiatives. Yeah, I will agree. Um, in educational initiatives and in nonprofit work, the sort of um, that sort of work in general, data is um, it's like a bad, it's like a almost like it's a four letter word, but like it's actually right. a four letter <laughs> word in some, for some people. And I think part of that is what you said around like the whole um, the misuse of data, how we have det- what we have determined as success, um, it's just become really twisted and, and it, it feels. Um, uh, um, those lacks in authenticity, but I think there's also just this fear that people have around data in general about like I don't know what to do with it. Or there's a lot of the data that we've it's been used has been used in a very punitive way, right? Like you know we have these things for our schools, for example. Like if you don't meet this number, then your school will be turned around, or you're going to be shut down and taken over by you know. And this is an extreme of an entity who's going to just you know change things. And so I think that's the other thing people. Have lost jobs over data and people not understanding the nuances, you know, that are, um, that are present. So I think that those concerns, um, are really real and I can understand where people come from that. So this is where we think about like when we talk about um, data for me, the, the purpose of it is because we have a success standard in mind. We want X, Y, or Z thing to happen. And so in order for that to happen, we think X, Y, and Z things need to take place. And I think the issue that comes up with data is when we talk about um, what does success mean? What is the issue that we are addressing? Who says and defines what the problem was and who is defining what success actually looks like, right? And so we're in our these school systems. Um, oftentimes that success is driven. I mean, I live in Texas, so our state education agency is, you know, they have, every, every state has this, but it's just this, it, that drives a lot of what we define as success. And it's unclear who, who said that that was successful, who said that this percentage of students who meet this standard is right, who says that the standard itself is correct. Um, So I think that that's part of it. I think also is thinking about when we think about solutions, who define whether this solution that we have come up with is actually the right solution, right? And so a lot of times we will have our experts, you know, I consider myself an expert in this space. We'll have people who have 20, 30 years of educational experience and they are considered experts. And I don't want to minimize that, but I think we have to go back to the community defining what is what is the issue that we want to address? What would you, as the person who is experiencing this, what would success look like for you? And I think that we just have gotten away from that because we're in this sort of rush of just doing the next thing, getting to the next thing. We have to you know, get these numbers up and things like that, that we're not taking the intentionality to be really clear or really helping, like really involving the community um, in the work that we are doing. Um, a lot of it feels like 
what is also when we talk about the, the the history of data and the history of what's happened in education, things have been done to people or they have been done for people and we're not focusing on what are we doing with people. And that's a big focus. Um, it's a huge focus of the work and the intention behind 4.0 is that community-centered um, model of um, really making sure the community is, is, is a part of the process from the start until the end. I think that's so important because what I often find when you have those conversations with educators, they'll tell you exactly what they think is important. They'll mm-hmm. tell you that, you know, it's okay that my students didn't get through this and this and this content perspective because they improved their you know, critical thinking skills. Isn't that what the education is really about, they'll say? And I agree with them, but then it always comes back to, okay, that can't be, that can't be an excuse. That can't be a crutch we use. How about we... In- instead try to measure that mm-hmm. right can't we mm-hmm. measure these outcomes it doesn't just have to be like a well you know i guess we'll never know because i think we're measure. you know they improve their critical thinking i think there's no inherent conflict there we can actually attempt with competency-based approaches or whatever to measure those things instead or in addition to the traditional metrics of success yeah i think that's right right that's that's the other tricky part about data is like how do you define these things like critical thinking what does that actually mean and like you said there are different resources that we have to to do that but it's it's also the the attention of like actually going back and stopping and taking the time to actually de- determine what do we want to use to help us to understand that right these measures are these sorts of um, um, constructs are difficult you know to, to sometimes quantify um, and so I think I can understand that tension and there's also I'm sure you've heard like we can't quantify everything and that's true you can't quantify everything everything is not supposed to be quantifiable that, that those roots you know um, and um, our thinking around uh, having to put a number on everything. So I'm not necessarily advocating for um, putting a quantifiable number on everything, but I do think that there's a need to to just really be thinking about that. as we think, like you brought up critical thinking, that's an important thing. We want students to be able to have that and say, go into the world. So what does that mean? Like, how do we know <laughs> that we actually did that? As you were saying that, it reminded me there there's a chapter in a somewhat random book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that is a very intriguing book for myriad of reasons. But um, he, Piercig, I believe you say his name, wrote an entire chapter about this fictional English professor who found his task of judging students' writing quality to be absurd because how do you truly judge quality? Can you really create a rubric around the judgment of quality? And what he eventually came to, this fictional English professor, was everyone intuitively understands what quality is, but nobody can truly define it. So he was making an argument that had philosophical basis and this wasn't certainly wasn't the point of the book to talk about education reform but <laughs> he was he was talking about what we really need to ask people is just their intuitive quality judgment and leave rubrics out of it which i i think is a very interesting point because really when you talk about competency development it is almost bastardizing it to make this extremely granular rubric when in reality, qualitative judgments are very accurate when it comes to these things. But how do you turn that into data? Right? It's, it's strange. So, anyway, you, you made me you made me think of that kind of tension that exists in my brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
right. Um, yeah, I, I, it's like we know, it's like you, you know it when you see it, but then like, how do we, we want to have a rubric, but how granular does that need to be? It's just, yeah, it becomes, it's, it's a, it's a challenging question, um, to, to have to tackle. And I think that makes people almost distrust numbers in general because they say, uh, I know what quality looks like. I don't, I don't need somebody to tell me what quality looks like or, or something like that. Or they think they grow to distrust numbers because they think it doesn't, rec- it doesn't recognize or measure anything truly important. So yeah, I just think it's such an interesting problem of how do you try to represent true progress, whatever that means, in the form of numbers in a way that people trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do people trust? I'm also thinking about um, something that you said that came up for me is like when we talk about um, I know what quality looks like, like, but are you applying that same standard to all like all of their students that you're working with? Historically, that's not been true, right? Like we have students have been a lot of our students who are um, people of color, particularly black students have been held to a lower standard or we thought that they can only accomplish this, you know, set of things. And so I think that's also where the standardization, where this push to standardization has come from is like this, um, we're trying to correct or address bias. Um, so I think there's also that whole piece about it too. When we think, when we talk about people who are like, I know what it is, but it's like, but do you hold every single person to that same? Are you lowering the bar in some ways or are you, yeah, those sorts of things come up. I'd love to talk about the the point you made perhaps it was before the call or (laughs) right in the beginning, I forgot, but about the achievement gap, right? This buzzword. What does that mean to you? And how do you think that's perhaps a flawed statement or train of thought? I think my thinking on this has really evolved. Like I said, I started off my, my educational experience, really a lot of it came from, um, my experience as a core member with Teach for America and the, the achievement gap was how a lot of that, I'm not, it's maybe evolved a bit over time. That was like how we talked about everything. Like white students are this, black students are this, um, you know, students who have disabilities um, are this. And for me, what's become problematic about that is it upholds this standard of whiteness of being the standard like what is like it it just is something that's it's become more troubling for me over time as we are still upholding the sort of you know white supremacy in the way that we think about education so i've become more thinking about what what is the standard what do we accept that all students will get to that is what we need to be thinking about and making sure that all students are getting to what what the standard is now we can have some debates and all that about what we think the right <laughs> the right metric is but i think for me just this whole achievement gap issue um, and how it's been, how it, how it was. And a lot of times it's still framed in, you know, white comparing, um, our students of color or students who have, or who are coming from, um, marginalized backgrounds, um, to what we consider the standard. And so what it just, that's to me has become more problematic and something I'm trying to shift away from, even though, you know, this is fairly new for me to come into this, you know, to be thinking in this way. So sometimes I actually will default back to the old language but I think for me it's this whole what is the standard and why are we holding students to that as opposed to what do we want everyone to achieve and how are we how are we looking at that 
I think that notion of standardization is a funny one in education because there's so much rhetoric that I agree with around the importance of diversity, right? The importance of diversity, not only in our classrooms and our educational experiences, but our society as a whole, which I think most people, unless there's something seriously wrong with you, agree that this is a very important thing. But then people will turn around and then talk about the importance of standardization or standards or standard-based grading, whatever, in education. And there is, in my opinion, an inherent conflict there. You have to decide whether you want diversity in all of its forms. You want kids to have different experiences and to bring their own selves and their own experiences to the classroom, or you want kids to be the same. Which one is it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about just how over time that has, if that's felt like it's changed. Like, no, when I, I don't want to be one of those like, oh, back in my day. But like, you know, at that time it was different. I felt like we had a standardized test. I barely remember what it was. It wasn't a big thing. Like we did, you know, I, we, we, I felt like learning still happened and we still, you know, were able to, like I said before, the educational experience I had growing up was, was stellar. It was great. Um, and now I think just over time, even my experience as a teacher and currently um, in the educational system, it's like just the standardization is, has just taken over um, everything. And so where do we where do we go from here in, in that? Um, but then I also think about, like I said, with my previous experience of my own experience in education, the K through 12 system was 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 great. That is not the case for every student who, who everyone who was my age back then at the schools that they may have attended in, in Tulsa or anywhere else. That wasn't the case. So then that's where we that's that's for me. That becomes attention. Like, how do we hold what is the bar that we are holding ourselves to? What are this is something that maybe was one of the questions you had that I don't have an answer to, but what do we, what is, what, what do we want, what is important for all of our students to know as they, once they leave our system, our K through 12 systems and go into, you know, their, their adult lives. Um, and so I think that's, that's where the tension comes up for me in, in getting away from standardization, but also realizing that there's just so many people who were just, what was accept was considered acceptable for them would not be consider acceptable for another group of students let me jump a little bit and talk about um where'd my brain go um (laughs) what was i gonna talk about uh cut that oh yeah the ethical testing okay um let's let's change gears a little bit and and talk about this buzzword i saw on your website which is super interesting to me uh this ethical testing phrase what is that mean to you and how does this play in especially in the mission of an organization like 4.0 that is designed to encourage innovation in education but being cognizant of the you know the <laughs> uh, negative experiences that experimentation has created in especially marginalized communities over the last couple centuries yeah i think this has really come up for 4.0 as an organization as we've evolved and grown in our understanding of our responsibility as an organization who is rooted in we are doing smaller tests of an idea when people come with an idea we are that that is the crux of we start with a small test we are not doing a go big or go home <laughs> approach and so then what does it mean whenever you're doing a quote unquote test or you are piloting an idea and how are you doing in that in a way that a um 
is honest about what you just said about the roots and what has happened in the past when tests have been done um, on people, um, either from an educational standpoint, of course, there's scores of medical things that have happened as well. So being really open and honest about that and helping people to think about a knowing that historical context, but then what does that mean for you as you are creating this idea? How are you thinking about your own identity as whoever you are, as you are coming into this space? What are the biases that you have? What are the motives that you have for doing this work? Um, What is the why behind the work? And being really clear um, about that. A lot of our um, work that is done with our fellows is really doing that deep um, development work about understanding yourself um, as you're entering into this space, um, as you are developing this idea um, and really making sure that you are thinking about it in a sense of does this advance it? equity um, or remove barriers for people, what you are planning on doing. Um, And then also thinking about it from like, what is the worst case scenario for what I'm doing? So let's say I want to have a a, my idea is to do a after school program or do like a, a pop up of an after school program. What's the worst thing that could happen for people who are participating in this in this experience? Um, hopefully, the worst case scenario is that the students have a boring day. Like it's just boring; they don't like it. But then, like, what does it mean if you know we think about? If we're participating in an after-school program and um, the learning is not what the students are not getting what they're what they need from it, they're not growing and learning. What does that mean at the end of the experience for the students? What's the worst thing that can happen from them? Are we thinking about our work from that perspective? I think also ethical means being honest with yourself about whether or not you're the person who. Um, who is supposed to be doing this work. You know, sometimes we have these kind of complexes about, oh, I have this idea, I'm the one who should do it. And that's not necessarily true, right? It could be that you you need to actually turn this over to somebody else who is better informed, who is more connected to the community, who has a better pulse on the community and the work um, to, to move it forward in a way that you just aren't able to do. So I think a lot of this is around this uh, an initial mindset and thinking and understanding of what we are actually doing with communities um, and how to how to go into the work. Um, I think then it actually becomes thinking about a, a process that we need to take around being clear about what does it mean to ethically test an idea? What does it mean to be ethical in the approach? Um, it really means... Um, I think being clear around what the, the the goals are, saying that upfront to the people who are participating, I am doing this. Um, does this actually sound like the right thing? Um, getting their feedback on the approach that you're taking. That's another huge part of our work um, in the community-centered approach is we call it empathy interviews and things like that. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But like really taking that approach to make sure that what you're doing is actually what the community says that they want and that they need. Um, And then designing from there, being clear about that, making sure there's informed consent, um, thinking about participant safety, their privacy. I think this privacy issue comes up a lot. We take people's quotes and and we just put them everywhere. (laughs) We just share their data. We do all these things. And we didn't ask them. A lot of times we're not asking people if we, if you're working in a school district, you, you do have to do those 
those sorts of things because of um, FERPA and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times that has not been done. We just put stuff out there. Or you start raising money and we haven't actually asked participants, is it okay for us to do this? Um, and then I think the last part, this is something that I personally am working on. And it's something that I know that 4.0 as I create um, what our evaluation and learning looks like as an organization is like the feedback loop, right? So a lot of times what happens when we do these sorts of ideas, we, we have this pilot, we run it, um, this idea, we go for it, but we don't go back and share with the community around like, okay, here's what I said I was going to do. Here's what happened. Do you agree that it met the goals that were intended? Do you think that this was the right thing? Were there things that you would change, um, would you would keep so that we can do this again and just have that open communication again with the community? That's a challenge. I will name that that's a hard thing to do and often requires that we have to, to slow down, right? We're in a, even we had a brief moment last year, people like, oh, we'll slow down and do things. We've gotten away from that. We're going back to just like this breakneck speed of just implementing and going on to the, and we feel like we have to just get bigger and bigger. And so I think there's this intentionality around slowing and making sure that we're being ethical um, in our approach and being really um, and bringing the community and working with the community as we as we do these things. I want to zoom in on a point you made about making sure we have the right people to make decisions right in the room. I think Almost categorically, the people who make decisions in schools are the wrong people to be making the decisions. They're full of people who are neither students nor parents. People have no empathy for the real solution other than perhaps what feels most efficient as an administrator. I I see this story play out over and over and over again. And at Sora, we talk to everyone very often in the organization about how we can lead from a point of empathy so 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 important like you said the empathy experiment uh, or empathy interviews so in your ideal world i know this is a very tough question i'm asking you to fix the education system (laughs) but in your ideal world how do you think these school design decisions are made or perhaps even just curriculum decisions are made yeah that is a tough question right so i think um it's a good question i think it really is I think we, it's like a, I I think of like a committee approach to it, right? Like I think thinking about it from having students be a part of the process, what do, how do we involve parents in a way, but then also I don't want us to throw away or to disregard the experience of educators or other people actually are working in education um, who have been in that, in that sort of have that sort of expertise um, overall. So I think that's, I think that's really, um, the heart of it is is having this sort of committee type approach. I think it's also about understanding like what do we what does a strong curriculum look like? What is it that we are wanting people to what are we wanting students to walk away with in the at the end? What is uh, what do we feel what do we feel that when if students do this it will set them up for success in X, Y, and Z ways um, later on. When I think about these whole conversations around critical race theory I think sometimes these these debates, I think that's where it gets sort of tricky around like people are saying we don't want this in our curriculum, even though it's probably not even there to begin with because it's not even a concept most capable. <laughs> but I think overall what that says to me, though, it's sort of like we, we're getting into the slippery slope of like how much input does 
say a, a parent have on what is in our curriculum? Um, what is the appropriate level? What is the appropriate amount? Do they even, you know, what is the expertise that they're bringing um, to us? So I think that that's why it becomes sort of tricky. And I think why we default to someone else at a higher level saying, actually, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to define it. Um, yeah. So I think, I don't think I answered your question, but those are just like thoughts, thoughts that come to me. No, I loved it. I loved it. And I think you brought up a really important point, which is let's use that as the example, critical race theory and all the rhetoric surrounding that over the last, I don't know, 12 months at this point, I've, I've lost track of time. Um, I think this is yet just another example of people not realizing this is what they're arguing, but still realizing that vast amounts of standardization in our curriculum is not actually what we want. Like, it's okay if we have students and, and families who want to engage with different ideas. And in fact, that is so important for our young people and our society at large to bring different perspectives towards this thing we call civilization. Like, that's a good thing. But we're talking about these at the highest levels of government we're talking about okay what are all kids going to learn or what are no kids going to learn right that's such an absurd conversation for me why can't we just recognize that it's good for kids to learn different things and aside from my own opinions about this which is it's good to have tough conversations and make people think um it's just a crazy backdrop for the conversation yeah i agree like i what you said around um all kids are going to learn this and then no one's learning this. <laughs> it's just like, why? Like, why is, why are these, why are these the things um, that we've said that, that all people need to learn and, and what isn't and who makes those decisions? And it's, it's so much of, um, I'm not sure where you're located, but I think also just like the, the climate <laughs> in which you are and who is, who wants to, who says that these things are important and who doesn't. And I think that's also where we get into the question that you asked earlier around who is a part of that conversation, right? When you have these, you know, decision-making bodies, do they reflect the actual, you know, communities um, where this is happening? Does your school board actually reflect the, and I know we've talked about a school board maybe not being the, the right entity, but at that level, do they even reflect the communities in which they are working or that they are intending to serve, right? If we have a, and I've, we see this all the time, you have a predominantly, um, at least here in Texas, a lot of um, predominantly Latino, um, Latinx, um, um, black student population, and then your school board is not that. So what are we saying? What are we doing? Why Why is that the case? Why are those the people, the ones that are making the decisions? Um, and why are we not thinking about who is the one who knows most about this community? Why are they not the ones who are in these um, positions of power? Which goes back to the, the work of 4.0 and the mission that we have around just making, um, getting back into equity of, of the um, equity in education and then making sure the, the people who are most impacted by the work are the ones who are creating the solutions um, and being able to be, um, we talk a lot around being able to be bold um, and make these new vision and do these new visions that are rooted in our own lived experiences and not what someone else said that we should be doing. I could not agree more. And at Sora, we have a bit of a radical solution towards this, which is we're going to design a bunch of different high quality, engaging, challenging topics for the students to engage with. But then we're going to open it up to the students and families themselves to craft their own journey based on interest. 
on what inquiries, which you know, essential questions seem most intriguing to them. Why is that not the norm? Why are we not engaging, not only making sure our school boards are full of diverse people with different perspectives, but why can't we actually go to the level of the family and of the student and say, given your own experience, your lived experience, how do you want to engage, like grapple with your understanding of the world? I think that is, <laughs> I don't know what, no one talks about that because it doesn't seem feasible. Um, you have to rethink a lot of elements of your school design, but I think that should be the gold standard. It's, it's something that people don't talk about, I, I think, because it's scary, right? Because it, like you said, it is something that you really do have to re, reconceptualize your approach to how you think about what school is and who does what and who says what and what the power should. All of those things require a total, um, just a total rethinking um, of everything. And that's, that's a hard thing. That's a scary thing, especially, you know, when we think about our schools, our people are career educators, like 30 years in. Like changing someone's mindset over that amount of time, um, it can be hard. Um, And then also I think it's because we don't, I don't know if we if we have enough or people know enough of like seeing like seeing the success of this or being able to look and say okay this actually could work um i think we just think about what well, just using our, our prior schema like okay this is the thing that we've done in the past let's keep doing it because it it works even though it does not work but we still taught ourselves it, it does um and so i think that there's that too but i think overall it's it's a fear and i talked about that with data but i think it's a fear you know for people to to do something in a different way let's i have one more question then i want to talk a little bit about 4.0 before we hop off (laughs) we'll get there i promise (laughs) but uh given everything we've spoken about of course reform has to be a multi-pronged multi-faceted strategy and it's going to take a lot of different smart people attacking this this from different angles but if you were able to just wave a magic wand and change one thing about how we approach let's say public education in the u.s what would that, how would you spend that wish? Mm. I wish that we could have real conversations or a real, there's like an awakening for people to realize that we're, what we're doing is not working. And just to be honest about that, what we're doing is actually not working, right? I think there's a lot of, my grandmother has this phrase, she calls it um, the same old gravy just warmed over. Like, <laughs> it's doing the same thing over and like a lot of times we're doing the same thing and it's like the definition of insanity. We're just doing the same thing, the same things. Just like, that's actually, that's not working anymore. This is uh, 2021, we're going to 2022 and we're still doing some things that are rooted in uh, when farming was the main way that, <laughs> that you know, of, of method of industry for our country. And so for me, I don't know if it's a wand. I I wish that we could actually just have like waves a wand and people just like wake up, (laughs) like really have wake up and to really be honest um, with themselves about where we are and that this is just cannot, we can't continue to to do this in the way that we've been doing things. Where I grew up in the South, we would call that a come to Jesus moment. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We need a come to Jesus moment on education. We really do. Yeah. Using my grandma. Use your grandma. That's what my grandma (laughs) say. <laughs> yes, you know, Oklahoma is kind of Southern in some ways. So yep, that phrase is very familiar to me. But yeah, it is. We need to have a come to Jesus moment about where where we are. And I think there are some pockets of people having these, but I just wish that we could have like a true like awakening. Awesome. 
Me too. <laughs> so before we head out today, since we're running out of time, could you tell us a little bit about your current organization, 4.0? And as I understand it, you are on Fund 3. So could you explain to the, uh, the audience what that means, your current plans, and also future plans? Yeah. So um, I am at 4.0. It is, uh, we are about a 10 year old uh, nonprofit organization and we invest in people who have um, ideas about how to um, change education. And we um, invest in them by, in four um, pillars that we call um, our foundations. And so they are coaching, community, curriculum, and capital. So we have fellows who come with these ideas. We coach them on how to approach ideas from an ethical standpoint, how to um, think about their own growth and development. Um, We have a curriculum that our curriculum team, they're awesome. They put together um, thinking about how to think about how to think about this work from a liberatory perspective. Um, And then we also have um, capital. So when you participate as a fellow, you receive some money to be able to test your idea. Um, And then finally, our last one is community which is our 4.0 community is everything. Like if we have no, like there's no 4.0 without our community. Our alums are involved in every stage of our work. They come back after they've done the fellowship and help coach people. They create our curriculum. Um, They come back and work on staff in various capacities. Um, So that is what our work is about um, in general. And so um, as a nonprofit organization, we... Think about how we fundraise for the organization and the idea of a fund. So fund one was um, in the first couple of years where we're really um, in the startup um, phase of like just, you know, making sure that this idea works. Um, and then we are then moving into fund two, which is becoming more sustainable as an organization. So that's over the next couple of years. And so now we are currently in fund three, um, where we are working on um, operational maturity, right? And having systems and standards and structures and processes that are in place so that we can um just have that in place for us as we move forward. So that's why my role was created as we are creating these systems and structures and processes around how we think about data and evaluation and things like that. Um, and it, that's also in some other roles that we have um, at the organization. And so then um, after Fund 3 wraps up in about um, almost two years, less than two years from now, we're wrapping that up. We're going into Fund 4. I won't talk a lot about it because I don't want to steal um, the thunder of um, some of our leadership but it's really thinking about how do we um, take this approach that you and I have been talking about around making sure that families are part of the work that we're doing, that it's not just rooted in the fellows experience, how are families being brought into this to create this new vision for what does education look like? Um, how are we bringing together um, families and our founders um, and other people who are part of this, uh, part of our, our network um, and funders um, to, to make this vision a reality? And so there's lots of really exciting things um, that Hassan, Hassan, um, he is our uh, CEO, has um, his vision for Fund4. So looking really forward um, within the next um, year or so, over the next year or so, really starting to share that with the community about what our, where our thinking is for Fund4 and how our, how our work is going to evolve. Incredible. Well, you heard it first here, folks. Be on the lookout for Fun 4, a teaser for the Christians. Uh, well, thank you so much, Christian, for being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for carving out time to do it. Yeah, thank you so much, Garrett. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sora's Learning Labs. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.